We are in Acts chapter 7 tonight, and tonight I'm going to do things a little bit differently than I usually do. If you've looked ahead at all into the chapter, you can see that this is a long chapter. It's 60 verses, and most of it is Stephen recounting the history of the Old Testament. And so what I wanted to to do tonight is we'll just take a verse or two at a time, and I'll just do a short explanation. And if you're at all, if you're at all interested in knowing the Bible, which I really hope that you are, um, have a pen ready because there's just a lot of connecting Old Testament to New Testament. This verse is this verse and that verse is that verse. This is a great chapter to learn about Old Testament history. I, I remember one time I, I had a, 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 a small, this small little church pastor who was, just knew the Bible so well and he was so faithful in the ministry and I asked him one time, I told him, I was like, I don't, I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand the Old Testament. I don't know the, the history of the people. I don't know the story of the Israelites. I don't know any of that. And the Old Testament's so big. I, it's just, it's intimidating. Will you help me? And he was, and he was and very kindly said, no, I'm not gonna help you. I'm busy, figure it out on your own. Now I wish, all these years later, that he would have said, read Acts 7. It's much smaller, and it gives you an overview, and you will get kind of a general idea of what's going on in the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. But connecting it back to chapter 6, if you were here last week, you'll remember that the church is in its very beginning stages of really taking root on earth. It's the birth of the church. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of drama. There's been persecution already. There's been some death already. And the church exploded so quickly that it, by the time we get to chapter 6, Luke isn't even counting numbers anymore. He mentions 3,000 in chapter 2. He mentions 5,000 in chapter 4. But by the time we get into chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's just, he's just saying people are being added because there's so many people. It says more than ever, men and women were being added to their number daily. And so to take care of just some of the, the basic daily necessities of the church, chapter 6 records the electing of seven men to help deal with the daily works of the church. And I have to put in a plug for the volunteers here at Dora Hope. Thank you, and we need you. We appreciate you. A church will not work without men and women volunteering of their time and of their efforts and of their talents. Taylor can sing. You don't want me up here leading worship. This place would be empty. It's really, really bad. And so we need people who have talents and gifts to make the church function. And so in the early church, they realized there's, you know, some of the, the scholars say that this the church is an estimated about 20,000 people at this point already, and so things got sort of clustered. And so they elected seven men to help smooth out some of the wrinkles. And one of these men is named Stephen, who's described as being full of grace and full of power, and he's doing wonderful works. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And he comes into contact with some people from some synagogues who don't like what he's saying, and been, they begin to challenge him. But they're unable to oppose his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Chapter 6, verse 10. They were unable to defeat him. They argued with him. They bantered with him. They were unable to defeat his wisdom. They were, un- they were unable to, to oppose what it is that he's saying. And so they start to go on the attack. And a bunch of men from different synagogues come against him and they start laying on accusations. They start bringing in false witnesses to falsely accuse Stephen of really four things. He's accused of blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the temple, and against the law. And you see that in chapter 6 and 
verse 11, it says, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And in verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So here are the accusations that are leveled on him. And his defense is, is brilliant in so many ways. He starts to, to recall the history of the Old Testament. But what it, one of the things that he's doing is, as an example to us, what we see here in Scripture is that Stephen knew his Bible. Just at the drop, he knew the Bible. And he quotes large portions of it verbatim from memory. He knows his scriptures. And this is, this is my conviction. You know, I've, I've mentioned this before. A question that I get a lot as a pastor and even a young pastor, not even as a lead pastor, I get the question, what is your vision? What is your goal? What is your ambition? And I, I honestly don't really know. I read Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. And I think, well, that sounds pretty good to me. I'm just going to stick with that. And if you want to get more specific, then we can work on that. But, but an area where I've, where I've realized I do have a real passion is to preach the Bible and to teach the Bible in such a way that, that people who are listening actually learn something. You, I, I like to teach through the Bible verse by verse, word by word, and occasionally I'll bust out the Hebrew and I'll bust out the Greek just because I want to bring out what is in the text, put it in our minds, and from our minds let it inflame our hearts. I want you guys, whether it's the small, the small group here at Night Church or it's the big group in the morning service or if it's somebody that I'm talking to at a coffee shop somewhere, I want people to know the Bible and I want people to want to know the Bible, to really have a desire to know the word. And Stephen shows us here that he knows the word very well and he uses it in his defense. 1 Peter 3.15 says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you when people ask. And Stephen gives a defense. He's been accused of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And part of what he's doing here in his response is answering those accusations with a negative. I do not blaspheme God. I do not blaspheme Moses. He's not anti-God. He's not anti-Israel. He's not anti-Moses. He's not anti-Israel's history. He is venerating the people of history. He's venerating Moses. He's venerating the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament and the characters in the Old Testament. And so he's defending himself, he's answering the accusations, but then he also moves from answering the accusations into an indictment of the religious leaders themselves. In verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. And that is what this history is about. So he's been accused wrongfully. Witnesses, false witnesses have been brought against him. And they come before the high priest, chapter seven, verse one. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen offers his response. He said, hear me, brothers and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So already, He's respectful. He refers to them as brothers and as fathers. That's, that's my, fellow, my fellow Jews, my brothers, and my fathers, my religious teachers. He's polite. He's respectful. He says, the God of glory. So already, just the language that he's using, he's affirming that actually I love the God of 
Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I love the God of glory. I love the God of the New Testament. He's not just, or of the Old Testament. He's not just making this, this name up. When he said the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, they knew exactly what Stephen was saying. He was quoting Psalms 29 verse 3. He's not anti-God. He's venerating the God of the Bible. He's saying the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. He's identifying himself with the people of Israel. He's saying our father, Abraham, the God of Abraham, appeared before him when he lived in Haran. He appeared before him in Mesopotamia. We're gonna see just in, just in verse four, and by the way, this is what tonight's gonna be. It's a lot of just connecting Old Testament to New Testament, Old Testament to New Testament. If you don't have a pen or if I'm talking too fast and you miss a note and you want anything that I say tonight, if you want to remember, I, I will give you my notes. Come and ask me. I will print my notes off and I will give you a copy. So he says Mesopotamia. Later on, he says Chaldees. And so there's the Greek and the Hebrew thing that's going on, on here. He says Abraham in Mesopotamia, that is the Greek word for Chaldees. When you read the Old Testament, Abram was from, the, from, was from Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a city in Chaldees, and God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, or Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. In verse 3, he said, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And that is in Genesis 12. You can read this account in Genesis 12, verse four. And then he left the land of the Chaldees and settled in Haran from there after his father died. And God had him move to this country in which we are now living. What we're gonna see tonight is that Abraham and the patriarchs and the Old Testament characters were given a promise, a promise of a land that, they, that Abraham would not see but that his seed would see. And what Stephen is saying here is this land that we are now living, God fulfilled his promise. Stephen's gonna show how God fulfilled his promises. Stephen's gonna show how the Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ. You know, in, when, after Jesus' ascension in, in, in Luke chapter 24, there's the two men who are on the road to Emmaus and they're met by this stranger that starts walking with them. And they didn't realize that this stranger was actually the resurrected Christ. And it says that while they were walking on the road, Jesus began with Moses and all the other prophets to interpret to them all the things in himself that are in the scriptures. And Stephen's doing the same thing. The guys in the, in the New Testament understood the Old Testament in a way that was entirely new to them because after Jesus rose from the dead and spent 40 days with them, he showed them all of the places in the scriptures that spoke of him. And Stephen is now saying that to these religious leaders. God has fulfilled his promises. So verse five, so he gave them an inheritance. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised that he would give it to him as a possession to his seed after him, even though he had no child. You can read about this in, Gen in Genesis 12, 7. Abraham lived on a promise. He lived his entire life hoping for the land that was to come. If you read Hebrews chapter 13, there's a long list of all these men and women who lived and acted in faith. And in verse 13, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Abraham lived on a promise every day of his life. Verse six, but God spoke in this way that his seed would be sojourners in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. That's quite a promise, isn't it? 
your seed will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And we know that the Israelites were in captivity and slavery in Egypt for 400 years. We're gonna get more into that when we get to verse 19. Verse seven, but I myself will judge the nation to which they are enslaved, and after that they will come out and they will serve me in this place. You can read about this in Genesis 15, verse 13 and verse 14. God promises your people will be enslaved for 400 years, but I will judge that nation. Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. In verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham was the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, the Lord gives the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. Not everybody's favorite thing in the world, but it was the way that the Lord worked. And, and, and also in Genesis 17, just so you know, Abram, his name is changed to Abraham in Genesis 17. So he's given the covenant of circumcision and the 12 patriarchs are born. These are the 12 founding fathers of Israel. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the history of the people of Israel. The 12 patriarchs are born, and one of them was named Joseph, verse nine. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, and yet God was with him. So this is, this is a bit where the, the story starts to take a turn. The indictment against the religious leaders begins here. Stephen starts to point out how Israel has treated leaders among the Israelites throughout their entire history. Joseph was the runt of the litter. He was the, he was the youngest. And if you read Genesis chapter 37, in verses 6 through 11, Joseph has these two dreams that seem to indicate to him that he's got a special place in God's plan. There's something about Joseph that is unique. He's being somehow set aside for the unique work of the Israelite people in history. The, Israel, the Israelite people are unique and Joseph is set aside as unique within the people of Israel and he goes and he tells his 11 brothers and his dad about it and they get mad at him. They think that he's being cocky and his brothers become jealous and in Genesis 37 verse 28, they sell him into slavery. Their first plan was to just leave him for dead. They threw him into a ditch. You probably are familiar with the story. And they were gonna give his dad some sad sap story about how he'd been eaten by a wild animal, but they found his coat of many colors and sorry, Joseph is dead, but let's move on with our lives. But instead of killing him, they decided, why don't we actually just sell him into slavery? get paid while we're at it, get paid for our trouble. So in verse 30, 28, it says that they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. 20 shekels of silver is, a, is about enough money to feed a medium-sized family for a couple of weeks. Food for a couple of weeks isn't such a bad thing, but when you consider it for a human life, they sold him for nothing. They sold him for an insignificant amount of money. Joseph was was set aside as someone anointed, as someone special in the plans of God, and his brothers grew rageful. They, they were raging with jealousy, and so they sold him into Egyptian slavery. 
but God was with him. In verse 10, and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he was appointed and governor over Egypt and of, over all of his household. So you can read about this in Genesis chapter 41. And what goes on here, if you don't know the story, Joseph is sold into slavery. And then he's bought as a slave by a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar takes Joseph into his house and treats him as a slave. And Joseph is, is working for this guy. And it doesn't take very long before Potiphar realizes, you know, there's something about this guy, Joseph. Everything that he touches prospers. Everything that he does is blessed. I think I kind of like this guy. And so as time went on, Potiphar became more and more trusting of Joseph until Joseph was over Potiphar's entire house. Now, Potiphar had his eyes on Joseph because he was effective. He was trustworthy. He was good at what he did. Everything that he laid his hands on was blessed. Potiphar's wife was into Joseph because he was fine form. He looked good in a tunic and she started to give in to temptation. And when you read through the Genesis account, she starts to say to him, hey Joseph, my, my husband's out of town. Why don't you lay with me? Why don't you lay with me? Why don't you lay with me? And he says, no, he says, no, he says, no, but it escalates and it happens more and more frequently and Potiphar is out of town and it gets to the point where Potiphar's wife finally grabs a hold of David and says, lie with me now. And, he's, and he says, there's no way that I can sin against God. There's no way that I can sin against my master. He's trusted me with his entire empire. How would I do this against him? And he fights against her so hard that he actually slips out of his coat and he runs away but now she's got his coat and so she takes his his coat and she goes to her servants and she says this Israelite tried to force himself upon me I want him arrested Potiphar comes home he hears about it and Joseph is thrown in jail Joseph is thrown in jail for doing the right thing his righteousness is punished with prison does that not sound like the theme that we've been on again and again and again. It happened to Joseph. It happened to John the Baptist. It happened to all of the apostles. It happened to the apostle Paul. And for Pete's sake, it happened to Jesus himself, punished for doing righteousness. So the indictment begins. Joseph is thrown into prison. But while he's there, it's discovered that he's pretty good at interpreting dreams perfectly. And so the Pharaoh over the land hears about this and he's had a couple of dreams that bug him greatly. And so he has Joseph brought out of prison. They shave him, they comb his hair, they put him in some new duds, they bring him before the Pharaoh and he says, what are your dreams? And Pharaoh says, these are my dreams. And Joseph said, this is the interpretation of your dream. There's gonna be seven years of bounty in the land, seven years of good crop, seven years of gain, and then there's gonna be seven years of absolute famine. So the seven years that things are good, we should plan ahead, we should save, and then we can distribute during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh goes, right on, you're hired, you're coming into my house. And so Joseph is elected to be governor of the land and he's second only to Pharaoh himself. And you can read about this in Genesis chapter 41, verse 54, that famine begins. Verse 11, now a famine came over all of Egypt and Cana and great affliction with it and the fathers could find no food. Our fathers, the 11 other patriarchs, they could find no food, verse 12. But then Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. Joseph's dad hears there's grain in Egypt and so he sent our fathers there for the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers 
And Joseph's family was then disclosed to Pharaoh himself. You can read about this in Genesis 42 all the way up into Genesis 45. And it's a whole long drama story that the details of it, you know, you can go read it. We don't have to get into all of it. But because there's food in Egypt, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery go to get some of that food. And Joseph sees them and he recognizes them. And he plays a little trick on them. If you know the story, he, he puts the veil over their eyes a little bit and he tests them. But he gets them to bring his father to them. And so he comes up into Egypt himself. And then the family of Joseph is disclosed to Pharaoh. And they stay with him there in Egypt. Verse 14. And then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob and his father and all of his relatives to come to him. Seventy-five people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. Joseph's dad goes down to Egypt and there he and the fathers died. And from there they were removed to Shechem and placed in the tomb with Abraham, which he had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So there's all sorts of history here, but the patriarchs all died in Egypt, never seeing the promised land. But their bones were taken to Shechem, which is in the promised land. They were not able to see the promised land in life They saw it through faith. They never experienced any of the promises. It did not come to fruition for them, but ultimately they were buried there. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 24. Their bones were taken to Shechem. And so verse 17. But as the time of the promise was drawing near, God had assured to Abraham that the people have increased and multiplied in Egypt. And then another king, verse 18, arose over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. And so here we get into the book of Exodus. This is chapter 1, verse 8. The people of Israel are prolific. They, they multiply and they multiply and they multiply until the current Pharaoh gets nervous because the number of the Israelites is so great. And he says, I'm afraid that the Israelites are going to team up with our enemies and then there'll be no stopping them. And so they, he starts to, to subject the people of Israel to abject slavery. He did not know Joseph. He did not know the relationship that the previous Pharaoh had had with Joseph and so he starts to oppress the people of Israel and the 400 years of slavery begin. Verse 19, it was he who deceitfully took advantage of our family and mistreated our fathers to set their infants outside so that they would not survive. Exodus chapter one, verse 16, Pharaoh tells the midwives, when the women of Israel give birth, look, and if they give birth to a little boy, you kill that little boy. If they give birth to a little girl, she can live, but kill all the little boys. Verse 20, it was at this time that Moses was born. So the accusations against Stephen are you blaspheme God and you blaspheme Moses. And Moses, or Stephen has now begun his rebuttal. He has, he has affirmed the God of the Bible, affirmed that he is a, a friend, a child, a son of Israel himself, and he, has, and he is now going to affirm Moses. He's going to start answering to the accusation that he blasphemes Moses. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured for three months in his father's home. This is Exodus chapter 2. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son, Exodus 2.10. They put Moses in a basket and they send him down the river. They had him for three months and then Pharaoh, the one who has, has, has declared that all of the Israelite boys must be killed, his own daughter finds Moses and takes him into her home. 
In verse 22, so Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in word and deed. But as he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his heart to visit his brothers and the, the sons of Israel. Moses grew up as an Egyptian. And no doubt, you know, Moses was put into the care of his own mother. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing story. Exodus 2, go read it. He's actually raised by his mother. Nobody knows that but her. And I'm sure that over time she told him and she told him who he was. He told, she told him who his people are. And so at the age of 40, he goes to visit his brothers. In verse 24, he saw that one of them was being treated unjustly because he was a slave. And so he defended him. And he took justice for the oppressed by killing the Egyptian and burying him. And he supposed that his brothers understood that God was granting them salvation through him, but they did not understand. They did not understand. There's some key words right there. And so verse 26, on the following day, he appeared before them as they were fighting amongst themselves. And he tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why are you treating each other unjustly? But the one who is mistreating his neighbor unjustly, unjustly pushed Moses out of the way and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this remark, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he was the father then of two sons. So here is where things start to really come together. Joseph was rejected. He was the anointed of God and he was rejected by the people and he reappeared as a redeemer. Here's food. There's a famine, here's food. Moses was rejected but reappeared as a redeemer. Both of them are rejected out of their families they were rescued by God then to bring life and freedom to their people. Jesus, John chapter one, verse 11. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him called and believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. But Jesus was rejected. They rejected him. Jesus was sold for an insignificant amount of money. He was persecuted, falsely accused, and he was killed. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's just so wild how the Bible is so interconnected. In Exodus chapter two, this, this story of, of Moses. Moses kills a guy, he gets called out, he runs away. Exodus two chapter 15 says that Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in Midian and he sat down by a well. That's Exodus two fifteen. He sat down by a well. And that should ring bells in our head because his, the man who Moses was representing, the man who Moses was foreshadowing, Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate savior who was rejected but is the redeemer, fled town and sat by a well. Read, listen to this from John chapter four, just a few verses here. John chapter four, verse one. Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and he went away into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus being wearied from his journey was sitting by the well. Here you have the son of God, Jesus himself, who came to seek and to save sinners, fleeing town. He's leaving town. He's leaving Jerusalem and he's going north into Galilee because he was gaining popularity. And he knew if I gain popularity and too much happens too soon, there's gonna be 
some drama and there, it, it's not time for drama. You see this in the book of John, Jesus leaving when things get hot because things are gonna get hot. He knows that he's gonna be handed over to the authorities. He knows he's gonna be arrested. He knows he's gonna be killed, but he knows that the time is not quite yet. And so when things started to elevate, he split. He's leaving town. He's going away from Jerusalem like Moses went away from Egypt and he went and he sat by a well. All of this foreshadows Jesus. Stephen shows how God fulfills his promises. He shows how the Old Testament points comprehensively to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and how the Israelites have rejected God's anointed every step of the way. This is the indictment that he's going to hit on again and again. Whether it's Moses, whether it's Joseph, whether it's Jesus, the patriarchs, even the patriarchs themselves rejected God's anointed. They rejected their brother Joseph, but he came back as a redeemer. The Israelite people rejected Moses. Moses defended one of them, supposing that they would know that the Lord was bringing salvation by Moses, but they did not understand. They saw Jesus in the flesh, and they did not understand. And Stephen is saying, you all have been doing this for a while. Pay attention. Listen to your history. So verse 30 to 35, and then, and then we'll be done. And after 40 years, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. This is Exodus chapter 3. Appeared to him in the wilderness in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was marveling at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came a voice from the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled with fear, and he would not dare look but the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. Moses was sent to Egypt. Jesus was sent to earth. John 17, verse 18, the high priestly prayer. Jesus praying to the Father says, As you have sent me into the world, I now send them into the world. Moses was sent into Egypt. Jesus was sent to earth. We are sent into the world. Verse 35, this Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This Moses, verse 35, this Moses whom they have disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? That sounds suspiciously like Acts chapter four. Peter preaching his second apostolic sermon in verse 11 says, this stone which was rejected by you, the builders, has become the chief cornerstone. And there Peter is quoting Psalms 118 Verse 22, this Moses whom they have disowned, this stone that has been rejected will become ruler and judge, will become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is imaged all the way through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is screaming about Jesus, telling us who he is, warning us that he is going to come, promising us that he is going to come. Moses was the one that was disowned. Jesus was the one that was rejected. And the one greater than Moses came and we put him on the cross. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Stephen is here pointing out 
case after case after case. I'm not a blasphemer. I do not deny the Old Testament. I do not deny the scriptures. I do not deny the God of the Bible. I do not deny the patriarchs. I do not deny Moses. I do not deny Joseph or anybody else. In fact, you guys are the ones who are getting it wrong. You guys are the ones who are not understanding. And this is what we're gonna see again and again. He's telling them the hard truth, but he's doing it out of love. He's saying to them, brothers and fathers. And as we're gonna consider next week, he has their attention. They're listening to everything that he's saying and they're even agreeing with everything that he's saying. But whenever he turns it on them, that final notch, they kill him. They don't kill him for doing anything wrong. They kill him for telling the truth. And that's what we have tonight. And, I, and so, and so I, I, I really mean it. Like I, this, this, this chapter, like I, I was kind of torn because this chapter is, is you know, it's, it's long. Uh, you know, it is. It's long. And that's okay. It's, it's really long and it's really wordy and there's a lot there. And there's a lot of references to the Old Testament. And that can be kind of boring sometimes. But my prayer tonight is that you take this, you take away that the Bible is written by God the Spirit, that there's nothing in here that's a mistake, that there's nothing in here that's coincidence, that this is the inspired, infallible word of God. And it's moments like this that we really see how it's all interconnected, how it's all planned, how it's all perfect. What Stephen is doing is one thing. It's very important. But what I also want to point out is, is, is I want to elevate Scripture itself. In this time where he's on, the tr- he's on trial for his life, Stephen uses the Bible as his defense. And so my prayer tonight is that we would understand a little bit more who Jesus is, a little bit more of his brilliance, a little bit more that he thought ahead and he left us this book. And the more and more and more that we know this book and the more and more and more that God the Spirit works in our hearts through the words that are printed here that are given to us by, by God the Spirit that we would come more and more and more to trust Jesus no matter what our circumstances. Even in a situation like this where Stephen is standing before a group of men that want to kill him, he trusts Jesus. And that's what I, that's the kind of man that I want to be. It's the kind of pastor that I want to be. And it's the kind of people that I'm praying you are. People who trust Jesus, who trust him, who love him, and who look at his word and don't just go, oh, this is boring. Can we move on? I, I can't move on. My heart is to, be, is to be a teacher who teaches the Bible. Because Jesus is worth it. He's good. And it's a day by day by day by day slow process getting to know him more and more and more, studying the scriptures, reading them over and over and over because there's no bottom to their depth. There's no end. There's enough here for a lifetime and an eternity because Jesus wrote this book. This is his book to us. And I'm inspired by Stephen because he just, off the top of his head, he knows all of it. He knew all of the New Testament and he knows that it points to Jesus himself. And that is my prayer for tonight. That is my prayer that is, is that you take that away tonight. And I, and I pray that you, I, I hope that you read the rest of the chapter for next week and that you come ready and that you come prepared and that you come, you come kind of knowing where we're, we're heading with, with this because it's good. It's good. Jesus is good and his word is good. And, I, and I'll say it again. I know that there was a lot of words and there was a lot of Old Testament references, Exodus 2, Exodus 1, Exodus 40, Joshua 24. I, I know if you, if you didn't get it all written down, if you want my notes, just come and ask me and I will print this off for you so you have it with you. You can take it home. You can study it. I want you guys to have it if, if you want it. So, so with that, I'll close this in prayer. Jesus.